<laughs> All right, here we go. Five o'clock. We are reading Psalm 119. Uh, gosh sakes, I don't know which one we were doing this week. I've, I've lost my place. So, Oh, yeah, we're on Aleph. That's right. First one. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Let's see here. We got that. And then we have, uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. But before we get into that, we'll have to read a couple things. We got our list of people that have asked for uh, people that are unsaved in their families, and I got the list in front of me, and I'm not going to read it, but we want to remember each one of them in prayer just collectively, and uh, I pull it out from time to time during the week if I have time and look at it. And uh, then we have a couple of prayer requests. Jim's father-in-law uh, is beginning to hurt himself. He We talked about him a week ago. He uh, is kind of having some delusions, and uh, he's uh, uh, struggling with life in general. He's an older gentleman, and he's beginning to hurt himself. So they've asked for prayers about that. And then I got a email this morning. Baby Elise has CMB, which is uh, fetal growth restriction and jaundice, and she's on antiviral drugs for six months, and she's being monitored at Vanderbilt Hospital. And so uh, that's a uh, concern for the family, obviously. And then we have also um, uh, this is. Could be a prayer request, but it's also a request for help. Is a Josie Norman? She's here in Sarasota. If anybody here knows somebody that can help her, she needs help with things around her house. She has constant pain, and she doesn't have a lot of money, but she just needs some things fixed up. So if you know somebody that's cheap and can help her out, she would really appreciate it. So, so let me know, and I'll get the information to you uh, concerning you know a name and an address and everything. But Josie is a she's in need of. Of, uh, some help there. So we'll go ahead and go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to just come into your presence and to uh, share in your word. And we certainly lift up the people on that list that uh, are needing to come to know you, a saving knowledge of you. And we also uh, lift up the prayer requests that were given. And uh, we just ask that you bless this uh, time together as well, that you would uh, ensure that we would stay on proper doctrine. And if something is said today that isn't correct, that you would uh, just wipe it from the memories of the people that hear it so that they're not led down a wrong path in their uh, doctrine. Lord, we do thank you for this word, and we thank you for, once again, the chance to meet here. How wonderful it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And so we hope that that'll be the case here. And we praise you, we love you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 18. 18. I'll start on 16. Again, sorry for my tardy. Yeah, my tardiness. I got here <laughs> early and I'm late. So, anyway. Uh, it's 518. That's last week. Here, I'll take care of that right now. There. Now it's 518. There we go. So, uh, I'll start on 16. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do not so, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself 
through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. reconciliation. Good deal. All right. Bible scholar Charles Ellicott notes the following. He says, the presence of the article in the Greek indicates that he is not speaking, he, that he is speaking not of the universe at large, but of the new things belonging to the new creation of which he had spoken in the previous verse. In other words, there's an article that quite often translations leave articles off, which should not be left off. But uh, there you go with that. In other words, this verse cannot be used for the doctrine of universal salvation, as if God has reconciled all things in the absolute sense. It is referring to all things that he has, in fact, reconciled, which were mentioned in the previous verse. It's like saying that all Israel will be saved, and that people take that and they say all Jews are going to be saved because of that. It has nothing to do with it. It's out of the context, etc., uh, in the Bible, not every all means all, and not every every means every. They have to be taken in the context of what is being said. A perfect example for uh, clarification is that uh, all of Judea went down to John the Baptist to be baptized. And then you go a little bit later, and it says, but the Pharisees and the whatever, Herodians or whoever, I don't know, scribes, whatever, they didn't accept John's word, and they were not baptized by him. So obviously, not all in Judea went down to get baptized. So you have to take things in their intended context. You cannot use this verse and a lot of other verses that people love to use for the doctrine of universal salvation. It's a mishandling and it's a poor handling of scripture to begin with, but there you go with that. So um, it's referring to all things that he has in fact reconciled, which were mentioned in the previous verse. Okay, It is in this sense that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And then the word reconciled is used three times in three different passages in the New Testament, but only here and in Romans 5 is that it speaking of the reconciliation which occurs between God and man through the work of Christ. He says this in Romans chapter 5, hang on a sec here, 5 verse 10, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In this, God is the one who primarily moves the process, which is done through Christ his Son. In other words, without Christ, there could be no reconciliation, the very subject of our sermon on Sunday. It's, uh, let's see, Jesus Christ, the God-man, part three, God's atoning sacrifice for sin. Why did Christ have to be both a man and God? Pay attention Sunday, then you'll find out why. But God accomplished this of his own accord, accord in the giving of his son. This then excludes any works on our part in the process. We simply receive the work by faith and the reconciliation is accomplished. And I'll make an argument that very early in the Genesis account, the pattern is given and the Bible will never deviate from it. All the way through, it is a work of God and God alone and all we can do is receive it. You're going to see that on Sunday. Anyway. And in order for this to come about, this reconciliation, Paul continues with the words that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a difference in the use of the word us here. In the first use of it, reconciled us to himself, the word is in the accusative. Here, given us the ministry, the word is in the dative. Again, Charles Ellicott provides a little bit of clarity for us. He says, it is obvious that the personal pronoun is used with a different extent in the two clauses. The first, embracing, as the context shows, the whole race of mankind. The last, limited to those who, like the apostles, were preachers of the word. 
the message of the work of Christ has been given to man to spread. And you think about what a responsibility that is, that God has allowed us to take the message of his son, and it ain't getting there any other way. That's just the way it is, life application. We were fallen and at enmity with God, and yet God reached out in love to reconcile us to himself. When so reconciled, we are considered acceptable in God's eyes to such an extent that we are granted the right to tell this saving message to others. So let us never fail to open our mouths and speak. God has offered to this world the chance to go from condemned to saved if we will but open our mouths and share the good news. Or if you're not very eloquent like me, take a, a track and hand it out and just hand it. I'd like you to read this. Maybe it'll change your life. Never know. That was very humble of you to say. Yeah, no, it's very true of me. I understand. I'm the one that edited, edits my videos on Sunday. I know. Yeah, there you go. I've seen you evangelize. You oh. do well. Okay, 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, the words, that is. I'll read it from the uh, New King James Version so you get the... Here it says, that is that God was in Christ, reconciling, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Even before I read the analysis of this, this verse, if any other verse in the New Testament, this verse right here assures you of eternal salvation. There's no other way about it. You're not going to be able to weasel your way out of this one and say, oh yeah, you can lose your salvation. This verse here is absolutely certain. Can we help you, ma'am? Oh, that's my mom. I didn't. I couldn't tell with all the bright dazzlingness of you walking in. So, okay, let's see here. Um, okay, the words that is are used to cl further clarify what was just written concerning the ministry of reconciliation. This ministry involved a process which comes directly from the eternal and infinite mind of God. It is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Concerning the words was and reconciling, Vincent's word studies notes that these words are to be construed together. Okay, there you go with that. The uh, participle with the finite verb marking the process of reconciliation. The emphasis is on the fact that God was reconciling, not on the fact that God was in Christ. God was all through and behind the process of reconciliation. The primary reference of the statement is, no doubt, to God's reconciling manifestation in the incarnation and death of Christ. Yet, as a fact, it includes much more. God was engaged in reconciling the world from the very beginning, and that in Christ. Everything is involved in it. What Vincent says here shows the immense love of God for the objects of his affection. Despite his wrath at our sin, God looked beyond that and has worked since the very beginning of time to restore us to himself. This is why all of the stories of the Bible are included. Each shows another step in the process of leading the world to Jesus. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go out and start watching the Genesis sermons, and you will see Jesus on every single page. Everything God includes in there. Why did he say this obscure story that doesn't seem to have any relevance to anything in the surrounding stories? You wonder, why did he throw that in there? It's because he wants us to see Jesus in it. Everything was meticulously ordered so that we can find Jesus. God has been reconciling us to himself each step of the way. 
and giving us hints and types of it all the way through history. Further, Paul explains that in this process, God has arranged these things for his people in a way that he is not imputing their trespasses to them. Important words there. For those who have received his offering of peace, we are not to be punished as we justly deserve. Instead, God united with flesh in the person of Jesus and took the punishment that we deserve upon himself. Therefore, by this act, there is no longer an expectation of punishment and condemnation, but rather one of divine favor and reconciliation. And this week, I'm going to be preaching on the atonement of God in Christ. How does that come about? And what's the logical thing to do on a week that you are going to be preaching on the atonement of God in Christ? What do you think it is? It's to watch the passion of the Christ. And so I've been watching it. It's very brutal. It's very hard to get through. The first time I watched it with mom and I cried through the whole movie. Okay. It's very difficult to watch. But if you're going to talk on the atonement of Jesus Christ and what he went through to cover our sins, it's probably a good point to do. So I'll watch a couple minutes of it each day until uh, we get to Sunday, and hopefully I'll have it finished by then. But there you go with that. This also shows quite clearly why Jesus can claim that there is only one path to God, and it is through him, as he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If the vicarious offering is not accepted, then only an expectation of wrath and condemnation remains. The world in this verse is speaking of humanity, but more specifically, those who have received Jesus. For this reason, Charles Ellicott gives the translation as how that it was God who was reconciling in Christ a world unto himself. In other words, what God has done is for a group in this world who will become a world unto himself. Those who are not in this group will not receive of this, this benefit. This is why there needs to be apostles, there needs to be preachers, there needs to be teachers of this word. If all people were being reconciled to God, then there would be no need for the word of reconciliation. See that? If, as I was talking about a minute ago, as, uh, what is it, universalism teaches, all people are reconciled to God. Well, if that was the case, there wouldn't be any need for what we're talking about right here. It would be a pointless act, and Christ's death would have had no purpose at all. It would be a foregone conclusion that all were saved. But because there is a need for the word of reconciliation to be communicated by you, by me, by whoever you are going to speak to about Jesus, it shows that the communication of that word is a necessary part of the process. As Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith, faith, that's right. Faith cometh by hearing, if you're reading the King James Version, and hearing cometh by the Word of God. There you go. You add the TH on, and you're, you're speaking perfect uh, King James English. The, or add it, uh, what is it, a E on to the end of words like old, right? And then you're speaking perfect King James English. You don't need to go any further. Yeah, or if you're speaking modern English, just take the TH off. and Like in the word faith, you say, faith comes by hearing. I'm kidding. There we go. <laughs> I'm just being goofy here. Okay, it is the transmission of this message which God committed to the apostles that is now contained in the pages of the Bible. For those faithful preachers and teachers who follow after them, there is the burden of properly passing this message of hope onto the world. Now, in my commentary, I did not touch on the note of eternal salvation because there's so many other verses that talk about that. But the point of eternal salvation through this verse is that if you are in Christ and God is not counting men's sins against him, 
then how can you lose your salvation? Because the wages of sin is death, okay? If God isn't imputing your sins to you any longer because of Christ, then obviously you are not going to die, and you are also not able to lose your salvation because you lose your salvation through the spiritual disconnect which comes through law. By law is the knowledge of sin, man sins, man dies. And that is a spiritual disconnect. The physical death is just an after aspect of what happens when you are spiritually cut off from God. Okay, And so if logically God is not imputing your sins to you because of Christ Jesus, then logically you cannot lose your salvation. It is impossible. That would also imply that God cannot see Yeah, that's right. Yeah, God made a mistake. Right. Exactly. Right. He can't see what's going on. He can't see the future. And therefore, he'd take away your salvation at one point or another, which is exactly what Wesleyan Arminianism would teach, is that God is changing his decrees or are changing, or God doesn't know the end from the beginning. One way or another, it's a, a failed system of theology. Life application. If you are feeling weighed down by the troubles of the world, just take time to contemplate the message found in today's verse. God has been working on a plan since the very beginning of time in order to reconcile you to himself. That plan included the ministry, suffering, and death of Christ. If God went through all of that for you, then your time of trial has a purpose and a plan, and it will have an end as well. Be of good cheer and stand strong in your faith in Christ. Now, I'd like to say right now that I forgot this. It was so on my mind that I skipped it when I was looking at my notes, is that I saw Freda today. Okay, Freda, uh, who attended the classes when she could, and you, if you remember, she's the girl that always left early because she couldn't drive in the dark, but she is in a home, okay? She was in hospice for a week, and she did not die, and so they sent her to a wonderful home off assisted of Bay of Vista. Facility. It's an assisted living facility, and I got their card because it is the single nicest ALF that I have ever seen. It is beautiful. You lay in a bed and you look out at a whole garden and there's fruit trees and flowers. It is really beautiful. So, um, and it's run by right in the uh, Mennonite area of Sarasota. But she asked that nobody go visit her. She will uh, email if she feels like she can have visitors, she will let you know. Or she'll let me know and I'll let you know. But right now she doesn't want any visitors. She's two weeks. She hasn't slept. She's just really struggling just to even go. And so uh, just we'll keep her in our prayers as well. She's really being positive in the Lord. I got to tell you, for all the pain and trouble that she is going through, and she's very thin. She's extremely thin. So uh, she just doesn't have any strength to see anybody. So she asked, just keep her in your prayers and, uh, and uh, just hold off on visiting her. So, um, before we go on, yes, before we go on, did not Job say salvation is of the Lord? Job said salvation of, of the Lord. Uh, that's and Jonah 2, verse 9. And David said in the 51st Psalm, says, Restore to me the joy, joy of, of my salvation. No, thy salvation. Yes, your salvation. That's right. That's exactly no, right. God's salvation. So, salvation is of the Lord. We're not totally saved yet until he comes and we're changed. Well, that's true. But in God's mind, we're saved. It we is, are, it's yeah. done. It's an eternal decree, and uh, it, it, his decrees do not change. And that's why it says in the past tense, we are, are saved, we are justified, we are glorified in Christ. It's all past tense because it is a done deal. Exactly. God's decrees do not change. Yep. Yeah. Confusion. Uh, we are saved guaranteed. But 100%. At the time... But then, at the last judgment... We're not going to the last judgment. 
we're not going to the last judgment. There is the judgment seat of Christ where believers will go to. There is the great white throne where all others will go to and they will be judged. Okay, but we are not going to be at that judgment. We will be there as spectators, I'm sure, but we're not going to be judged by them. Okay, we are judged. I'm not judged. sure I want to see that. Yeah, well, you know, whatever. I mean, whatever God has planned, whether we're there or not, is irrelevant, I mean, to us. You know, one way or another, whether we're there watching or whether we're not, that is irrelevant. It's just that we will not be a part of that judgment. We have gone from death to life. We, the only judgment we will have will be at the Bema seat of Christ. We will stand before him for rewards and losses. That's 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. Yes, that's correct. So, as a matter of fact, it was just uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. We just went through that last a week ago. Where was that? Um, uh, yes, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, speaking of believers, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, that isn't something we need to worry about. And also, the people that are martyred during the tribulation period will not go to the great white throne. It says that they will be resurrected at the end of that period, and they the second death has no power over them. So those people also will never have to go to the great white throne. All right, so there's different judgments in the Bible, but ours, our judgment was, our judgment for salvation and condemnation was at the cross of Christ. That's where it happened. And at that point, if you have received that during your life, before your last breath, then you are done. That judgment is behind you forever. You'll have a different type of judgment after you uh, or when you face the Lord. So there you go. 819. We just did that. Oh, we did. No, we didn't. We did 18. So we did 19. Not counting their, not imputing their, their sins against them. Where are we? Um, 20. <laughs> You were in 19, now we're in 20. Uh, mm, 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 mm. How you everything that the commentary on 19 that goes to the Five, eight. Oh, you know what? I've got I've got eight here. That's the problem. Holy mackerel. That's uh hang on. There we are. 520. I had my we were talking and I turned all my pages over. That's why I said eight, nineteen, we're in five yes, five twenty. There we go. Right. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There you go. Good. Yeah, be reconciled to God. In the previous two verses, which were verses 18 and 19, Paul had spoken of the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. Now he combines those thoughts into this verse. He begins with now then. The Greek for this word is hyper. And it is usually best translated for the betterment or advantage of, for example, focusing on benefit, okay? In other words, and that's Vincent's word studies commentary. In other words, because of the ministry which we have been given, we now relay the following, which is for your benefit. That's, that would be the intent of what is, Paul is saying. With that understood, he says that we are ambassadors for Christ. The word translated as ambassadors is used only twice in the New Testament. It's used here and in Ephesians 6, verse 20. It is presbeuo, and it means to act as an established statesman or a diplomat, a trusted, respected ambassador who is authorized to speak as God's emissary or represent his kingdom. That is from Help's Word Studies. In essence, Paul is saying that the message he and the apostles carry is as if Christ 
we're personally speaking it, which is exactly what an ambassador does. When we, when an ambassador goes overseas, then they serve in their mission, wherever it is, and they are doing their duties and they speak to somebody in the government over there. They are speaking for the president of the United States. And so they have to get what they're saying right. And if they don't get it right, then they will be recalled as an ambassador because they have brought embarrassment to the president who they represent. Okay, that's why. Does anybody remember what happened just a while ago with the Ukraine? A certain ambassador was brought back and everybody said how bad it was and he couldn't have done that. They serve at the pleasure of the president of the United States. He can pick up the phone any day of the week for any reason or for no reason at all. And he can say, I want you to come back to the United States of America. Your job is done. And when a new president comes into office, we'll say that when our previous president left and President Donald Trump came down the elevator and he was inaugurated as the president of the United States of America, every ambassador on this planet of the United States of America does what? They don't come back home. They submit a letter of resignation saying that I resign my ambassadorship and I am now at your pleasure to remain. You can reappoint me or I will come back. So it has nothing to do with anything you have heard in the news. And that's the same thing that we have right here with the ambassadors of Christ. You are speaking on behalf of God as if you were representing Christ personally. And that's what the apostles did. They were ambassadors for Christ. And he could recall them for any reason at any time at his will. Okay, this is the job of an ambassador. They are to convey the desire and intent of the one they represent, speaking in the stead of the one who appointed them. In the case of the apostles, they spoke, as Paul says, as though God were pleading through us. Without a doubt, and what can be taken in no other way based on his words here, is that there is nothing God needs to do concerning the matter which will be stated. All right? Rather, there is something that man must do. This is why Paul uses the term pleading. It is as if God's hands were stretched out in asking for a response. Okay, everybody got that? Because that will touch on the doctrine of Calvinism, which says that you're regenerated in order to believe. God does all of the work and you have no part in the process. And first he regenerates you, you're born again, and then you believe and then you're saved. It's a convoluted system of theology which does not match the biblical text at all. Okay, it is as if God is pleading through us. Okay, God's hands are out and he's asking, do something. And the message that these ambassadors proclaim from God, who is pleading through them, is that we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. That sounds like man has to do something. It sounds like he is not regenerated in order to believe. Rather, he must respond with a positive action. If God need do nothing, and the burden is laid on the one being petitioned, then this verse shows with all certainty that the Calvinist doctrine of predestination and election is false. They teach that God predestines some for salvation and some for condemnation, and that free will is not included in the process. Based on Paul's words here, that is not only utterly ridiculous, it is dangerous. Why would God plead through his ambassadors for man to be reconciled to him if man was under no obligation to respond? Further, why would God plead this on Christ's behalf? What would be the point of saying this if Christ's work encompassed election apart from free will? All right. What would be the point in saying any of these words at all? There would be none. 
And as I've said, the logical outcome of Calvinism is that there is no need to send missionaries anywhere on this planet. You don't need to tell anybody about Jesus. If you go to a restaurant, it doesn't matter because God has already predestined them. If God's will cannot be thwarted, then you don't need to do anything because he will save exactly who he predestined before the world began as they believe. And like I said, that's not what the Bible teaches in any way, shape, or form. And this verse is just another of hundreds of verses that show us this, okay? Such a doctrine does damage to the purpose of the cross of Christ, which was to provide atonement for all people potentially based on their choice of being reconciled. If they refuse his offer, the atonement that was offered is withheld. If they receive it, it is granted. It's that simple. And that's just the way that salvation works. Life application, Paul's words are clear and concise, and they are also consistent. Man has an obligation to respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. If he refuses the offer, then there is no other way to be reconciled to God. Exercise your free will wisely and choose Jesus Christ. All right? Bible is full of whosoever will. Whosoever, that's right. It's full of them. It's everywhere in there. It just, it's such a nagging little word to put into the Bible if you're going to have the doctrine of Calvinism. Whosoever, whoever believes. You might as well just scratch all those words out because they obviously don't really mean anything if you're a Calvinist. All right, go ahead, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, I will bet, I'll bet anybody here, any amount of money that they want to lay down, I'll bet you that unless the Lord comes first, that that verse will be in this Sunday sermon. Okay, that's my bet to you. Anybody want to make a bet on it? Okay. From time to time, it is recommended by Charlie Garrett that a verse should be memorized and ready to be repeated at all times. This is one of them. In grasping the words of this verse, we find what the significance of the cross truly is. The order of the words in Greek show an emphasis which is lacking in our translations. It, the order is, him that knew no sin, he made sin for us. God sent Jesus on a definite mission in order to redeem fallen man. He was born without inherited sin, and he lived his life perfectly under the law, God's standard for man. This is testified to on numerous occasions in the New Testament, such as John 8, 46, John 14, 30, Hebrews 7, 26, 1 Peter 2, 22, and on. In being perfect and sinless, Jesus was thus qualified to become a human sacrifice of atonement for those who otherwise had no hope. Once again, we're going to talk about the process of atonement all the way through on Sunday from beginning to end. You're going to hear it. I hope that it'll help you package it up a little bit more firmly in your mind. All right. It's important to note that the words to be are inserted by the translators, but are not in the Greek. Instead, it says he has, in parentheses, he made him sin. Does this merely mean a sin offering, or does it literally mean he was made sin? The answer is to be found in the Old Testament sacrificial system. An innocent animal was brought before the Lord, and the offender laid his hands on it and confessed over the animal. In this act, the sin was transferred to the animal. Thus, the animal became not just the sin offering, but the sin itself. The transfer was made in accordance with the law, and therefore God viewed the offender as having been purified, and the animal as being sin-filled. 
The sin offering does not mean that the sin was offered to God, but that the animal, which the sin, was the sin, was to be killed because the wages of sin is death. The life of the offender, the recipient of the transfer, was offered in order to remove the sin. You have to go back to watch all of the Levitical uh, the Leviticus sermons of the sacrificial system to understand this. You go through there and one sin offering, the blood is taken in one way. Another sin offering, the blood is taken in another way. Another sin offering is taken all the way in to, it's sprinkled all the way in the holy place, okay? And then once a year, it goes into the most holy place. And then you have one offering, which is actually the blood is burned with the offering. It's the only sacrifice in the Old Testament which does that, which is the, begins with R and ends with R and has Ed Effer in the middle, anybody? The red heifer, okay. The blood is, why was the blood in that offering? Why did that happen? This is what's being pictured. And you have to go through every one of those offerings and you have to think about them. Why did God do this? What was the purpose of it? Why did he have these people eat sin offerings? Okay, the congregation does something and the priests eat the sin offering, the flesh of the sin offering. Why did they do that? They were the eaters of the sin, okay? It was symbolic of the sin being taken away from the congregation, okay? And that's what happened. I'll take you there just so you can see this. This is during their ordination, okay? God just accepted the ordination. You're going to hear this again on Sunday, not, not this whole thing, but you're going to hear the verses which talk about it. And so this will help you to get ready for Sunday, is that... Um, uh, the what? Yeah, Leviticus chapter 10, but in verse 9, at the very end of chapter 9 of Leviticus, it says, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Oh boy, God has accepted the sacrificial system of Aaron the Levites. It's all accepted. God approved it by showing this demonstration of his power in burning up the offering. The old covenant sacrificial system is now in effect. God approved it. Everybody see that? That's what that demonstration was for. The next verse, 10.1. Then Nadab and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire... Same thing, it just ate up the other thing, went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord, okay? What is that telling us? And then you get down a little bit further towards the, uh, the uh, end of the chapter in verse 16, then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was burned up. Then he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left saying, why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place? They were supposed to eat the meat of that offering, signifying they are the eaters of the sin. They are taking the sin upon themselves, and then when they go do their business, that sin is being removed from them, okay? It's just a picture of what Christ did for us, okay? So, um, they eat the guilt offering uh, before the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place, what that means is that certain uh, offerings, the blood had to be taken into the holy place. It couldn't be eaten by the, the priest because they were involved in the sin. Okay, so look at it this way. This is the priest. They are involved in the corporate sin of Israel. Okay, Israel together is sin. The priests are involved in that because they're a corporate Israel. 
they must take that blood into the holy place and put it there. What happens if they eat the meat of that sin offering? They're eating their own sin back. It's picturing the sin coming back to them. So that would be wholly burnt up before the Lord to get rid of the sin. Nobody would eat their own sin offering. That's why the person that put their hand on that animal and confessed it did not partake of that animal. They wanted it away from them. If they ate of that animal, like you did with the fellowship offering, you'd be re-eating your own sin. But the priest was the sin eater. They ate the sin and disposed of it for the people. But when the priest was involved, then something else had to happen, and they could not eat that offering. So that will get you ready for Sunday on that. But that is what we're seeing here. They consumed the sin. The sin became a part of them in essence, okay? Not in reality, I would say, because... The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, but it's picturing what Christ did for us, okay? So, we'll go back. Um, I'll read that again. For this reason, the sin offering was to be wholly burnt. None, let me go back and just read this. An animal, innocent animal was brought before the Lord, and the offender laid his hands on it and confessed over the animal. In this act, the sin was transferred to the animal. Thus, the animal became not just the sin offering, but the sin itself, the transfer was made in accordance with the law, and therefore God viewed the offender as having been purified and the animal as being sin-filled. Hence, the priests are going to go eat it. The sin offering does not mean that the sin was offered to God, but that the animal, which was the sin, was to be killed because the wages of sin is death. The life of the offender, the person that brought his sin offering, the recipient of the transfer, was offered in order to remove the sin. Okay, for this reason, the sin offering was to be wholly burnt. None of it was to be eaten. If the sin offering was con consumed, it would, in essence, be taking in again of the sin which was transferred to the animal. Okay, however, the book of Hebrews shows that this was only a picture of faith in the greater work of Jesus Christ, the Lord, because it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. These Old Testament sacrifices only looked forward to Christ and what he would do. And this is exactly what Christ did for them, looking forward and for us, looking backward on the cross. God sent him on this mission, perfect, pure, and spotless. He went to the cross bearing our sin in himself. The transfer is from the offender to the innocent, and so he literally became sin. As the wages of sin is death, then he had to die in order for the sin which was transferred to him to be removed. If he didn't die, then the sin would have remained somewhere. But it didn't. He died and the sin was expiated. It was taken away. Okay? But something more incredible occurred. Because he had no sin of his own, he did not die in sin, but for sin. Without his own sin, it was not possible for him to remain dead. That is found in Acts 2.24. I imagine you'll hear that again on Sunday as well. Thus, he rose from the dead. He died for sin, not in sin. He died for your sin, my sin, all of the sin of the world, but he did not have his own sin, and so death couldn't hold him. So he died, and the sin is gone. Another picture of eternal salvation right there, if you think about it. Okay, Your sin, you have committed and you've received Jesus, was put on him. It doesn't say your sin until the moment you receive Jesus. It's your sin, your life of sin. It's not something that my life has to, I have to keep having this offering for sin every day. Maybe Catholicism teaches that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Our sin is gone in Christ. Past, present, 
and future. Okay, if he died with our sin, past, present, and future, then that means, as it said in the previous verse, God is not imputing sin to us. Okay, does everybody see that? You can't lose your salvation. I don't care what you do, but you will lose your rewards, and you could lose your life in the process. If you do something really dumb in this life, which is contrary, one, to the law of the nation, and two, contrary to the law of God, you will suffer for it. There's no doubt about it. That's just the way that, th that things work. But you cannot lose your salvation because Christ has taken it away and he died with your sin and he came out of the grave without it. Your sin remains down there. He came out of the grave. That was 2,000 years ago. Yes. He died for all sin. That's right. The sin that I had before I believed in God and any sin that happened after, after. I believed in God was all future. It's all figured in. So all sin right. is figured into there. Book of Life is a completely different subject, and it would take way too long okay. to go through that. I, way too long. It, it's a study that you have to be very precise with, so I'd rather not answer that. Okay. But the Books of Life are, they're in the Bible. There's, it's referenced in Exodus. It's referenced in, but that is a, a study that really needs to be done separately. Because if not, I'm going to get 400 emails from people wanting more clarification on something I said or didn't say. Okay, it's not a long study, but you have to be very precise with it. So the books of life, don't worry about it. If you have received Jesus Christ, you are in the book of life and you will never... Here, let me read you a verse from there. Uh, let me take you there. At least this will give you something to consider. It's from the book of Revelation. It's probably uh, Revelation 2, maybe uh, Revelation 3. But give me just a second to find this. And this will pacify your... Uh, your curiosity, at least about that. Um, let's see here. I'll give him a stone, and it says um, uh, here what the okay. Hang on, receive from my father. Uh, uh, here it is, right here. Garments. Uh, four. Uh, yeah, right here. Five, three, five. I'll go to four. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He's speaking to a church that is a crummy church, and he says, "Yeah, there are some of you who are in Sardis who have." not soiled your garments, okay? You'll walk with me dressed in white. What does that tell you? That there are good people even in bad churches, okay? So when people go saying all Catholics are going to hell or all Baptists are going, it's stupid. Never Don't you? Yeah, you, you know what? They, there are people that are good people in bad churches. It may be the only church in town. It may be that their theology isn't very great, but they just want to go fellowship <laughs> with people. Don't be a point finger at an entire congregation of people just because it's an entire congregation of people. I guarantee you that there are probably some people in this congregation right now that are not as good as they think they are. But as long as they've called on Jesus, they are saved. Okay, everybody got that? Just take away the generalities and get to the specifics. So verse four again, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That should answer at least that question of you. You're in the book of life and he will not blot it out. And how do you overcome? John says it. First John 5, 4. Go ahead. First John 5, I'll get it. If you, if you don't have it memorized, I'll read it to you. But First John 5, 4, he says, that's probably what I'm looking. Yes, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's exactly right. That's the verse I was going to cite, but not right, you know, just from the top of my head. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Christ has done the work. We exercise faith. And when that happens, you have overcome, passed, done, and he will never blot you out of the book of life. That's sufficient for the book of life for now. But getting into all of the nuances of it, 
you have to be precise or like I said, I'm just going to have 400 emails on it and it's it, it would just be, I'd be responding all day long on something that can be done in just a, a study all by itself. But it, what's that? You read four, read well, five. go ahead and read it because I've already closed that. <laughs> Who's the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's exactly right. Okay. He is the who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, which goes back to what we talked about last week. Jesus Christ, the God Man, Part Two, His Deity. Okay, the Son of God means that He is God, because everything does what after its own kind reproduces after its own kind, okay? Even if you don't get any of the other deity of Christ right, the very first page of the Bible, God put information there for us to understand. Everything reproduces after its own kind. If Mary was a human being and Jesus was born of Mary, then, she, then Jesus is what? He's a human being. And if God is God and Jesus is the begotten of the Father, then he is a... He is God. He is God. Not a God. He is God. That's right. Okay. So everything reproduces after its own kind. He is the God man. He put that on the first page of the Bible so we wouldn't make that error. And then he gave us a billion other confirmations of the deity of Christ. If you're confused about that, go watch last week's sermon and it'll help you through that. It's very clear that Jesus is God and that he is man and that the two do not overlap and yet they never separate. Okay. It's the hypostatic union, two natures which are forever united without any overlap, but without any separation. Okay, so we got that. That's great stuff there concerning uh, what Christ did for us. And um, uh, the book of Hebrews shows that this was, the sacrificial system was only a picture of faith in the greater work of the Lord, because as I said, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices only look forward to the work of Christ. And this is exactly what Christ did for them. As I said, looking forward for them, looking backward for us. As Jim noted, it's been 2,000 years, and the same salvation applies, and it will apply to anybody that comes after us if the Lord doesn't come for us, okay? So salvation is eternal. God sent Christ on this mission, perfect, pure, and spotless. He went to the cross bearing sin, our sin. The transfer is from the offender to the innocent and so he literally became sin, okay? Therefore, go down a little bit. Sin was judged in him, our sin. Once such a judgment is rendered, it can never be made again. And so an exchange was made at the cross. God made him sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, all right? As our sin has been judged, then there is only righteousness left. Once again, that's another argument. Within two verses, we've gone through at least three arguments for eternal salvation. Our sin is gone. There's only the righteousness of God. We cannot lose our salvation, okay? In God's eyes, our sin, past, present, and future, has been judged. Not might be judged or will be judged. It has been judged from the moment that you call on Christ. Once again, go back to Romans. You have been justified. You have been glorified. God's decrees are unconditional. They are eternal in nature, and they cannot be changed, all right? Without any sin, we have become the righteousness of God in Christ, and this concept is spoken of here is similar to that which is found in Galatians chapter 3, where he says in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs 
on a tree. Okay, you will hear that. I guarantee you again, if you stick out the Deuteronomy sermons, you will hear that in Deuteronomy chapter one, the uh, opening verses of Deuteronomy. I get, I think the first two or three verses done in the first sermon, but I will use that verse that we just talked about again in our opening uh, commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is an exceptional book, and I happen to be going through it right now in my uh, audio Bible, but I got to tell you something. It is a marvelous book, but if you get stuck in Deuteronomy, as people do, and you think that you have to observe the law of Moses, then Deuteronomy should probably be uh, explained to you a little bit better. Like all of the law of Moses from Genesis through Deuteronomy, it is pointing to Christ. It is pointing to his fulfillment of that law, not our need to observe it. Okay, that's a really important point for people to understand. And here's a perfect example, which we have mentioned at least 20 times in the book of Numbers. Somebody answer this to me. The law is represented by who? Moses. Moses. Okay, and where did Moses die? Outside. Outside of the land of promise. It's a picture that the law cannot come into the inheritance, and those who are of the law cannot come into the inheritance. It is only by faith that you will enter the inheritance. They did not have faith when they were down at the the, uh, south of Israel. The Lord said, go on up and take the land, and they sent the spies. They spied out the land. The spies came back with a bad report. The people says, oh, we're we're never going to be able to do that. They had no faith in God, and he said, okay, you're all going to die in the wilderness. And that's Israel, 2,000 years now, in the wilderness, dying because they did not have faith in Jesus Christ. And they will again have the law right at the end of the age. They're going to have the temple and they're going to have the sacrifices. Daniel chapter 9, it tells us it's coming. And yet they will not enter the promise because of that. They have to come by faith in Christ. And eventually they will. They'll call out for Jesus. And as he said himself, he will return. When you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The typology of the Old Testament is simply typology. It's to show us that the law is ineffective in bringing you or me or any person on this planet into glory. Faith is the only thing that will do that. The law stood against us and it testified to our sinful state. But Christ who fulfilled the law condemned that sin through his marvelous work. Again, Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8 where he says, I've got a bent page there. Let's see here. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. He says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Just keep thinking of the sacrificial system and all of the types and pictures of these animals, tens of thousands of animals, hundreds of thousands of animals being brought down to the temple, people putting their hands on it, confessing all the stupid and wicked things they've done, the animal dying, it all Look forward to Christ, every single bit of it. And if they really believed God is taking my sin and he's allowing my sin to be put on that animal, then they were not observing the law so much as they were observing faith in the Christ to come. That's what they were doing. They were being saved by faith, but it was faith under the law, okay? The law cannot save anybody. Only faith can save them. Only faith and nothing else. Yes. No sacrifices today. That, yeah, we, the sacrifice is done. He is the sacrifice. No, but they don't sacrifice. No, that's either. right. So and, but like, you know what? They they have to come up with all kinds of things, and they have that in their Talmud and the Mishnah, and they, you know, they have mitzvot. They do good deeds of righteousness and blah, 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 and that's supposed to get them to heaven. And there is no salvation, and there is no security in that salvation that they think they might have 
at all. Zero. Okay, but you're right. There's, they're not doing it today, and they think that they're somehow right before God because they are circumcised. We're the people of God. Now, we talked about that either in last week's sermon or the week before. People all over the world are circumcised. It's not just Jews. Circumcision means absolutely diddly without faith. That's the circumcision, Genesis 17, came after the faith, which was Genesis 15, verse 6. That's right. So it, it, people need to understand that the circumcision was not something that said, okay, I'm justified because of my circumcision. It was simply a picture of Christ to come. And when the picture was fulfilled in Christ, circumcision is unnecessary. That's why Paul argues against it all the way through the book of Galatians. Thank you. Okay, so the um, Romans, uh, oh yeah, 8.3 we just read. This righteousness of God that we just read about in Romans 8, okay, is something that we cannot do without if we are to be reconciled to him. Either we possess it or we can never enter into his presence. And because none of us has an, a righteousness of our own, then nobody can enter into God's presence without the righteousness of Christ. Nobody can do it. As Charles Ellicott notes, the righteousness of God, as in Romans 3, 21 and 22, expresses not simply the righteousness which he gives, nor that which he requires, though neither of these meanings is excluded, but rather that which belongs to, to him as his essential attribute it is god's righteousness and it is imputed to us it becomes ours not because of something we've done except by faith in what christ has done only the faith in what christ has done allows us to have that attribute imputed to us as incredible as it seems christ jesus was seen as our sin there on calvary's cross at the same time we were and are even now viewed, this is what's incredible, as Christ's perfection. When God looks at us, he does not look at the sins that we commit. He looks at Christ's perfection. That's what he sees, because if he saw our sins, he wouldn't see us at all. He only sees the covering of Christ. As I said, again, God's atoning sacrifice for sin. The word is kafar in Hebrew. Kafar means a covering. That's all it means, a covering. And we'll talk about that when we get to there on Sunday. All right, God sees Christ. He doesn't see us, okay? And what we've done, I'm saying. He sees Christ and his imputed righteousness. That is the thing that is amazing about what Jesus did. Because of his work, we take on a new nature in God's eyes. All right? We are That's why the term in Christ. In Christ. Paul uses it what? 5,000 times, 10,000 million times, I don't know. And they all use it because it is a term which signifies our position. We are in Christ, and so God sees Christ. All right? If we weren't in Christ, then God would see us, and then he would see our sinful nature as it really is. Okay? Everybody got that? That is the covering. Christ. Life application. Because God views us as sinless, isn't it right that we act as such? I know it's hard, and we all do something wrong from time to time, or every minute if you're Charlie Garrett, but we can at least try our best to live as if we are really in Christ. The cost of our life was the life of our perfect, sinless Lord. As he died for us, let us endeavor to live for him. 6-1. How about 1 oh. Corinthians 1.30? What's that? 
First Corinthians. First Corinthians one. We did that already. We've already done one Corinthians. Oh, okay. All right. One Corinthians one thirty. Hang on. Now, oh yeah, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Oh, that is perfect verse. Beautiful. Thank you, Burke. Okay, six one. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Ah, yeah, okay. Again, as in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, this verse clearly demonstrates the incorrect theology of Calvinism, which excludes free will. One has to read right over such verses, ignoring their intent completely, in order to develop such an unsound systematic theology, which then isn't very systematic. Does everybody understand the term systematic theology? I'm reading the Bible. I am developing a system of theology. And it's not just an easy thing to do. It's not a simple thing. A systematic theology involves all of the disciplines that are found in the Bible. Atonement and justification and expiation and sanctification. Systematic theology covers everything, okay? Or it should if it's a thorough systematic theology. There's a problem, though. The more that people write on theology, if they've got one little thread wrong, then it just gets bigger and bigger, and the, the tear gets bigger and bigger as they go. And that's why following one person's systematic theology is probably not the best idea. You read people's systematic theology, find out what they said, and I will argue for this. I'm going to argue for this in the last of our doctrine sermons, okay? It's going to be kind of a repeat of the first doctrine sermon. It's going to be based on the Word of God, and it's going to have almost no Bible at all. It's just going to be me talking to you, all right? I want you to do, above all, one thing. One thing. What is it? Read the Word of God. That's the, it, you don't even have to watch the sermon now because you know the brunt of it. You can just say that to yourself all day and all night, every day and every night, and that is the brunt of that sermon. But I'm going to give you a logical reason for it, okay? Read the Word of God. Because if you don't know the Word of God, and you read somebody's systematic theology who's a really great writer and a very smart person, you're going to believe him without having any basis for believing him. No basis at all. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of systematic theologies that you can buy right off of Amazon. And there are hundreds of them beyond that that you can find in old bookstores and stuff. People have written systematic theologies. That's what John Calvin did, okay? And you read it and you think, well, he knows I don't have to read the Bible because I'm reading this systematic theology, okay? I'm going to get theology by reading what he knows. What a terrible mistake to make if you don't know the Bible, because if you don't know the Bible, and wait, when they are in error, as they are going to be, as Charlie Garrett certainly is, you will have an error in your theology because of that. If you know your Bible, then you can say, I don't know why I know this, but I know that that is wrong. And you can go and read other commentators on that particular subject or that particular verse or that particular word that may be that important. And you'll say, I know why that guy is wrong now. But if you don't have that basis to at least have the hint, I know something is wrong, he makes a convincing argument, but you're going to be stuck. So please read your Bible. Read your Bible. That's what I would ask above all else is that you read your Bible. That will help you above everything else that you do. Sitting in this class, I'm so happy people do it. If there's anybody watching online right now, we love you. Anybody watches on YouTube later, that's fine. But read your Bible because 
how do you know if I'm right or not? You can't have any basis for it. All right. The prayer you started off. The prayer. If I do something, if, if I... Absolutely. If I say something wrong, please wash it from their minds because I don't want my incorrect theology going through somebody's head and then having them build on that. I just don't want that. It's going to happen, I'm certain. I, I would never write something intentionally wrong, but, you know, if I believe I'm right, then obviously that's what I'm going to write, even if I'm wrong. That's why you need to know your Bible. You, not me, you need to know your Bible. Okay, so Paul begins the chapter with, we then. He is speaking of himself and the other apostles, as he has even from the first chapter of this epistle. As apostles and as workers together with him, his petition will be made. The words with him are inserted, but they are implied based on the use of the compounded Greek on, meaning with, which is found in the word synergontis. The word synergeo means to work together or to cooperate. Therefore, when compounded with own, it means to work together with, all right? The question some scholars debate is whether him then refers to God or to Christ. The reason for this debate is because with is certainly referring back to verse 520, which said, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We, imply, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, all right? So we've got this question, is it God or is it Christ that they're talking about? It's actually a bit of a silly argument for us to argue this. But for the clarity of the matter, we should analyze it. Paul said in this verse that the apostles are ambassadors for Christ. Okay, An ambassador speaks for the one who sent them. However, it is God who is said to plead through the apostles. Therefore, either option is a possibility if one wants to divide Paul's thoughts into two different entities. But if we understand that Christ is God, that's right, then the debate is unnecessary. God is pleading through Christ because Christ is God's revelation of himself. Further, Paul says the same thing concerning God in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, where he says, 3 Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Okay? Understanding that we, as the church, are living stones in this temple, which is 1 Peter 2, verse 5, unless you believe that there's two gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles, but there aren't, okay? And that the church is Christ's body, which is Ephesians 1, 23. He just said it was God's body, right? God's temple, God's workers, God's this and God's that, Okay? But he says in Ephesians that it's Christ's body, then we can see that these are ultimately one and the same. It is then the apostles together with him who also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The grace of God he is writing about can be nothing other than the message of salvation, the gospel. It is the message of pardon leading to reconciliation with God, which is found in the sacrificial giving of Christ for fallen man. And so the question must be asked, why would God, meaning Christ, God in Christ, pl plead along with the apostles for us to not receive the grace of God in vain? If free will is excluded from the equation, everybody see that? Why would he do that? If we're following the Calvinist model where there is no free will in man, then why would he even put these words like the ones we looked at a couple minutes ago? It wouldn't be in the Bible. 
okay? One can see how dangerous this type of theology is. If someone is expected to make a volitional act of the will in coming to Christ, but they are told this isn't necessary because God has elected them apart from their free will, then they could end up never making such a decision. Thus, they will be excluded from the very hope which God is pleading for them to possess. That's why Calvinism is so dangerous, is because people are just not willing to go out and evangelize because God's will can't be thwarted, and so I don't need to bother, and people are going to hell because of Calvinism, okay? That's a real problem with the world that we're living in. Now, the people online did not see this, but somebody just walked by with pizzas and stuff, okay? So I want to, while we're here right now, I want to thank Ryan Jackson. He's up in Canada and he watches online and he sent some money for us all to have pizza today. So if you're a friend with Ryan on Facebook, please send him a thank you. And if uh, you're not and you're on Facebook, then friend him and let him know that he's loved and appreciated and we thank him for that. And uh, we'll be having uh, pizza in just a couple minutes. So we'll go through one more verse after I finish this. Uh, we'll go to 6-2 and then we'll be done. Life application, if you have never simply received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, calling on him as Lord, then do so today. The choice is an, an eternity deciding decision, and the choice is yours. Okay, 6-2. For he said, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold. Oh, sorry, there is no. <laughs> I tell you. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I know, they, it's an offset, and so you think that's the end of the verse, but it's not. So there you go. In verse 1, Paul said that they, meaning the apostles, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, to show the importance of calling on Christ at the present moment, whatever that moment may be, he goes to Isaiah 49, verse 8 to demonstrate that even the Old Testament showed that there would be an acceptable time for both Jew and Gentile to reach out and to be saved. His quote is from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. I've told you this before. It's the translation of the 70. That means that there were these 70 people that translated it from Hebrew into Greek. But even the Hebrew version carries the idea that he is conveying. We'll take you to the Hebrew just so you can see. It's Isaiah 49, verse 8. Give me a second to get there. Isaiah 49, verse 8 says, Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. For he says, then is speaking of the Lord who is God. As Jesus is one and the same with the Lord of the Old Testament, it is, again, a note of the surety of the deity of Christ, as was explained back in verse 1. It is he who says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. There was to be found a time of special grace upon the world. That time came at the advent of Jesus Christ. He, born without original sin, lived under the law perfectly, and gave his life up in exchange for the sin of the world. We talked about that just a couple minutes ago. His resurrection proved that this was so. Fifty days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all who believed. This is that acceptable time. It is a period of grace where man's sins are not counted against them. As Paul continues, he writes, And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. 
Where we cannot help ourselves, Christ stepped in to help us. We already bear Adam's sin and thus stand condemned before God. We cannot traverse time and undo what Adam has done, and so we stand helpless to do anything about our miserable plight. But at the coming of Christ and in the completion of his work, he has helped us. There is now a way of being reconciled to God. But there is something important attached to this that Paul informs us. He says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The urgency of his words shows us at least two things. One, there must be an obligation upon us. If not, then there would be no need to worry about God or the apostles pleading for us in this act. And two, there is a, or pleading for us to act. And two, there is a point when this accepted time will end. That's the important thing that we really need to focus on. Christ's offer is exactly that. It is an offer. It can be accepted and it can be refused. Further, it is not forced upon anyone. No person is, as I've said twice already, regenerated in order to believe. Rather, they are given an offer of peace and they must accept it. The day of salvation, then, is any day that we have, as we only have today, as is explained in Hebrews chapter 1 through 4. Very minutely, he speaks about the word today. If it's a good translation of the Bible, they will capitalize today to have you clue into it. Pay attention because he's making a theological point about the word today, all right? Then we need to understand that today is, in fact, the day of salvation. There is a day when we will die, or at least become incapable of choosing Jesus. At that point, today is over and our fate is sealed. Paul's words in this verse are a sobering reminder to all that our days are numbered, but that this set number is unknown to us. The first chapter of Proverbs shares the same thought with us. Proverbs 1 verse 24, let me take you there. Psalms, Proverbs. 10, 9, 8, 3, 1, 24. It says there, Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity and mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then... They will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Before I give my life application, when I uh, tell somebody the gospel, I always try to say this verse right here, Behold, today is the day of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. And then I give them an example that they can remember and think about. Because you hear words, and sometimes they don't have any meaning to you beyond the words themselves. And so, in order to explain what Paul is saying, I give the same example every time because it's some, something that everybody today knows about, although kids that are younger are starting to not know about it. But we were all there on September 11, 2001, right? And we remember seeing the news come on. And there's this building that's on fire because an airplane, full of people, by the way, slammed into that building. And every one of those people on that airplane were not there on that airplane to fly into a building. Every one of them was there to go somewhere else, thinking, I'm going to go and have a vacation, or I'm going to go on business. And not one of them thought, I'm going to be dead in the next two seconds as the plane went through that building. And then after that, 
You've got the building standing there on fire and there's people that can't go down below the fire because it's so intense and it's gone through the entire thing. So what are they doing? They're standing at windows and they're looking down hundreds of stories and saying, what am I going to do? Am I going to burn to death or am I going to jump? And we all seen the pictures of the people jumping because they thought, I'm going to go up and have coffee at the top of the world today. And not one of them thought, I'm not going back down this building in the way I came up. And that's the example I give every single time. Think of your own example or use that one, but tell them today is the day of God's favor and now is the time of salvation. We do not have tomorrow. Nobody has tomorrow. We only have today. All right, life application and we are done. If you have heard his voice, don't rebel against it. Receive Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. There is no tomorrow that we can count on. Call on Jesus today. Yes. We're talking about in Christ. John chapter 10, 28 through 30. The ends with, I and my father are one. Oh, I and my father are one. But anyway, all your mommies, everybody here, she had those little canister sets on the kitchen counter. Yep. One went in the other. One went in the other. Ah, uh, that's right. He said, I'm in the father. And, and you are in me. Jesus is in, oh, Jesus, I in you, and Jesus, I'm in Jesus, and he's in God. Nobody can pluck them out of my That's right. Said, Nobody can so take them out. Like you are, you are in there. there. That's exact. very good analogy. analogy. Wonderful analogy. All right, here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word and to think on the glory of what Christ has done and the brutality that he suffered so that we could be free from our sins. Lord, we thank you for what you did, and I, it's something we can not even get our minds around, but we are so thankful to you that you made that avenue possible and we would ask for wisdom in the people that are listening that may not have called on Jesus that today they would call on Jesus and Lord we thank you for Ryan and the food that he's bought for us today we ask that you send a super special blessing on his head and also we ask that you bless the food that we're about to have and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name amen, amen. thank you Ryan <laughs> 124 thank you